So we're looking at chapter 1, 12 to 14. I'm going to read it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll uh, get to work. We'll examine it together. Amen? Then they returned to Jerusalem for the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. He says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Father, we just want to call out to you now, Lord, and acknowledge that um, we really need your help during this sort of time in all times, but especially now, uh, since the Holy Spirit is the great uh, decipherer and discerner of your truth, uh, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit at this time so that we can understand exactly what you're trying to say here and that we may apply it and be transformed by the power of your word and be on task for the gospel and transformed by the gospel. And so fill our hearts now in this place with the Holy Spirit, Lord. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive your truth. And uh, we thank you, Lord, uh, for what you'll do in this moment and how you'll speak to each one of us. And you'll speak to each one of us in, in different ways. You'll apply different things to us, things that need to be applied to us at this time. And that's what's so awesome about your word. It speaks to everyone. And so speak to us through it now. And may we reverently, uh, reverently listen and, and be attentive and pay attention and take good notes and apply the things that we learn. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. amen. Yeah, you might want to get your note stuff ready real quick. So let's begin with verse uh, 12. And I guess before I really kind of enter into this thing, I, I should describe some of the things that have happened. Basically, if we, if we go back in chapter 1 prior to uh, all the way up to 11, we see Jesus uh, having a, a, a bit of a teaching moment at the Mount of Olives with his disciples, and it's just before he ascends off into heaven. He's completed his ministry. He's come back and witnessed to people, showed himself that he's been resurrected for 40 days, and now he's taken his disciples up on the mountain, and, and then he, you know, he teaches them some more things about the kingdom and all this, and he kind of brings it to a head, and then he goes off and he ascends off into heaven. And, uh, and that was really awesome when we talked about that last week because the ascension is such a critical doctrine. And in all honesty, I've made this point, and um, I, sometimes I just overemphasize things, but I think it's true that the ascension isn't a doctrine that we really study or focus on. Or, I mean, I was looking back on my faith, life of faith, and I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on the ascension, the doctrine of ascension. Oh, I've heard a gazillion of them on the cross and on resurrection, especially every year. Easter's coming. You always... It's always about the resurrection on Easter, right? It should be, but you know, guess what? Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, so resurrection is something we should talk about more than once a year. But how often do we hear sermons on, on the doctrine of ascension? We really don't. And it's such an important doctrine. I talked about this last week because Jesus entered into our realm, into our time and space, into our world, as a, he came in into Mary through the Holy Spirit. And he came basically, essentially, into our world from heaven in the form of a baby. He was born, and then he came out, and he did his ministry. He lived a life and did his ministry. Well, the ascension is the doctrine that shows his exit back to where he came from. That's why it's so important. He came into our world. We call that the doctrine of incarnation. 
Well, when he left and went back off to his throne of glory where he had come from for the first time, that's the doctrine of ascension. And so the doctrine of ascension proves that Jesus came from where he said he came from. And so it's so important, right? I mean, isn't that an important doctrine? Why don't we talk about it in the church? Why don't we teach on it? I don't know. We covered that last week. You can go back and listen if you missed it. But this is what's happened. The guys are basically, you know, they're, they're come, they're, they've come down off the mountain after the ascension. And I think these things are all playing out during the same day, the same afternoon, or whenever this happened. So let's look at 12 together as the narrative, as the story continues. It says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. Now he's referring to the disciples who were up on the Mount of Olives, who had watched the ascension, who watched Jesus go off. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Okay, as I said, the last charge that Jesus gave to the disciples before his ascension was for them to wait in Jerusalem uh, for the Holy Spirit to come to enable them to be his witnesses in the world. This is really the last thing that he told them up on the mountain before they came down off the mountain. This is the last thing that he told them. Don't go out and do a bunch of ministry. Don't go out and spread the gospel. Don't go out and do all the things that I've called you to do. You're going to be able to get an opportunity to do that, and I know you just want to get out there and do it because you're on fire for me, but don't go do all those things until the Holy Spirit comes in a different way than he's ever come before. He's going to fill your lives. He's going to change your lives. He's going to equip you forever. He's never going to leave you. He's going to be with you so you can do the ministry. That's the last thing that he charged them with before he took off and flew off into heaven, as it says in Scripture. And flew off sounds weird. It sounds like a cartoon, but it is weird. I mean, he just, the clouds. I mean, it, it just, it, it's just bizarre, but, you know, anything's possible with God, right? And that's how he went off. And so he told them to wait in Jerusalem. So what we see in verse 12 is we see obedience from the disciples. We see them come down off the mountain after Jesus told them, wait in Jerusalem. We see them come down, and now they go back to the holy city, and they're there now. And they're awaiting for the Holy Spirit to come. Now, right after his ascension, they came down, and now they're back in the holy city. Now, verse 12, uh, in verse 12, Luke wrote that the mount called Olivet is near Jerusalem. Um, I think that he did this. Uh, he, he called it Olivet, or actually more so that he said that it was near Jerusalem, because we must remember who he wrote this letter to. He wrote this letter to a Greek guy named Theophilus. Theophilus was not familiar with this area, this region of Palestine. He, he didn't know the geography. He was a Greek. He was probably from up north or some other Roman province or, or something like that. He could have been from Caesarea. And I don't know about Caesarea. That's pretty close to Jerusalem and stuff. So he probably was from somewhere up north. And so he didn't have a real good sense of what the geography was like or where Jerusalem would have been as opposed to the Mount of Olives or any of that. And so what our author is doing, since he's writing to this guy, he's trying to give him a sense of what the geography is like. He says the Mount of Olivet, that's where they came down, and that's known also in that day and age and today as the Mount of Olivet. He's saying it's near Jerusalem. So now Theophilus is thinking, okay, so this is close. All right, I, I, I'm familiar with Jerusalem. I have an idea what that's like. The temple's there and all those things are happening. They got that wall around it, and that's kind of like the, the Jewish headquarters for Judaism and all that. I get that. I'm familiar with that. Okay, now what you're saying is the Mount called Olivet, the Mount of Olives, is close to it. So he's trying to give him an idea of, of the geography here. Now, the Mount of Olives really isn't a mountain. It's like a big hill. It's only 400 foot, 
above sea level. Okay, so it's not, I mean, this is like, uh, if you were driving down the highway and it was 20 miles away, you wouldn't even be able to see it. This thing is not, it's not like Mount Diablo over there that's 4,500 feet above sea level. It's not really a mountain. Why they call it a mountain, I, I don't know. The Sea of Galilee is not really a sea. It's like a big lake, and it's like one quarter the size of Lake Tahoe. Okay, so I, Jews are strange when it comes to their geography. You know, no offense if you're Jewish. But, you know, that's a sea. No, that's a pond. You know, that's a mountain. No, that's a foothill. I mean, can you imagine how offensive it would be to people who live in Colorado where they're surrounded by the Rockies? 400-foot <laughs> mountain, come on. We've got Pikes Peak here, pal. That's 15,000 feet. And so this thing is really just kind of like a, a bump. Okay? It's a bump. In fact, it's only 200 foot in elevation higher than the holy city, Jerusalem. Jerusalem sits at about 1,100, I think, feet above sea level. And so this Mount of Olives, no, not 1,100. It's only like, a, it's, it's like 200 feet above sea level. So the Mount of Olives is only 200 feet above that. And so you've got Jerusalem. You've got this bit of this peak of this hill that sort of rises above it. So it's not very tall. It's not very large. And it's actually located on the east side of what they call the Kidron Valley. Now, I'm going through some of these details to help you with the geography here, because guess what? We're like Theophilus. We're not from the area. We don't know the area. We've seen pictures of it. Some of you have probably taken a trip there. Hallelujah, I've never gone. I hate you. Um, But, you know, some of you have probably gone there, but we, we really don't know what it's like or what the area is like, so I'm trying to help paint a picture for you as he did for Theophilus. But it's basically on the east side of what's called the Kidron Valley. Now, the Kidron Valley is a place that's mentioned many times in scriptures. In fact, the armies of the world will, uh, that oppose Israel will come through that valley to attack Israel in the end times. In eschatology, that's what it teaches, especially in the Jewish side of it. Jewish eschatology says that all of the nations will rise up against Israel, and they're going to all funnel down this Kidron Valley, and they're going to go make war with Israel. And scriptures say a lot about that, too. So the Kidron Valley is, is, is an important uh, piece of real estate or strip of real estate in the area. Now, it's located on the east side of the Kidron Valley, which basically runs along the eastern wall of the old city of Jerusalem. So if you look at the eastern wall of Jerusalem, you've got basically right on the other side of that, you've got the Kidron Valley, and then you've got the bump, the geographical bump, the Mount of Olives. Now, Luke added another detail in text that will help Theophilus know the geography, and, and he did it by stating that it's a Sabbath day, or it was a Sabbath day's journey away. That's very interesting to me that he put that in there. He puts it in there for a reason. Now, a Sabbath day's journey was the maximum distance one was permitted to travel on the Sabbath under rabbinic law. It was fixed at 2,000 cubits. And you probably don't know what a cubit is, but some say a cubit is from the tip of your finger to the, the inset of your arm right here where your elbow is, that's about a cubit, which is probably a little bit over a a foot. But basically, 2,000 cubits actually equals probably somewhere around a half mile to three quarters of a mile, uh, if we understand what a cubit is correctly. And I don't know if we really do, but it's somewhere around there, a half mile to three quarters of a mile. Now, according to tradition, that distance derives from Israel's encampments during the 40 years of wilderness wanderings. You can look back at, uh, 
at Exodus, you look back then during that time of 40 years that Israel was wandering around in the wilderness, and what was happening is God was waiting for a generation to die off, a generation that was um, very disrespectful towards him, irreverent, disobedient. He was waiting for that generation to die off so that he could take the new generation, work with them, and send them into the promised land. So this whole idea of uh, a Sabbath day's journey was sort of derived from those encampments during that time. Now, the farthest tents during that time in those encampments in that 40 years of wandering, the farthest tents were held to have been about 2,000 cubits from the tabernacle. Since work was prohibited on the Sabbath in Jewish law, the rabbinic law, the farthest anyone would need to travel was 2,000 or the 2,000 cubits to get to the tabernacle to worship. Now, because of this law and what they wrote, they, I mean, they deliberately, they had the, the tabernacle here and all Jews had to come and worship, I guess faithful ones, had to come worship at this place. And so they made sure to never put a tent farther than 2,000 cubits away because if it were any farther away, then they would be breaking their own law by walking too far on the Sabbath. I mean, isn't that incredible? I mean, they actually wrote like laws like this I mean, and there was 600 of them. I mean, it must have been like, a, like an imprisonment because, oh, you, you couldn't walk too far. You, you, you couldn't, you know, do, you, you couldn't fetch water a certain way. You guys may not have known this, but you couldn't even cook on the Sabbath. You couldn't even, you couldn't have a Super Bowl party. You could, but you'd have to have leftovers. I mean, and that's okay, but, you know, you, you can't get, you know, yarmulke pizza delivered on, you know, Sunday or what, I mean, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't prepare food on the Sabbath. And so what did Jewish families do? They prepared food the day before. So everything you ate was like the next day. They always did this before Passover. They did it before Sabbath. Now, um, well, not Passover, but just Sabbath. This is why they kept large amounts of salt on hand in, in Jewish homes because they would take the cooked meat and the uncooked meat and they would pack it with salt as a preservative. They didn't have refrigerators. I don't know about you, but roasted lamb sitting out in a, in a desert region for 24 hours, that, I mean, can you imagine what it must have smelt like? Oh, this is delicious. What? I mean, that's what they had to deal with. And some of that food's just nasty anyways. Uh, it just, uh, falafel? Ah, you know, it's just not for me. Oh, I know, some of you guys are big falafel people, but, you know, I don't know. It's got a particular taste that just rubs me weird. And just, it just I, I just eat it, and after a while, I just feel like, like getting a burger or something, you know? But, and not a lamb kebab. But anyway, so, you know, they... He's, he basically, what he's doing is he's describing again something here that's very important. And this whole idea of a Sabbath day's journey isn't found in Scripture. This law about only traveling 2,000 cubits on the Sabbath, it's not even found anywhere in Scripture. It's all derived from tradition. It's derived from that whole experience that the Jews had in the wilderness thousands, a couple of thousand years before this instance in Scripture when they were wandering around in the wilderness. And to me, it's absolutely incredible to think that the Jews had to literally keep track of how far they traveled on Sabbath. I mean, what do they have, those little pedometers? Oh, one more step and I have broke the law. I'll have to stand here all night and I'll do it. I mean, I, they crippled themselves with these laws. And, and the thing is, not only uh, did they jack themselves up with these laws, they impressed them on others and jacked up others. The Pharisees were basically the police for the law. 
They taught the law, they enforced the law, and they punished according to the law. And it's amazing to me that someone who might walk 2,001 cubits whoo, could be punishable by the law. Maybe a stoning, maybe imprisonment. I mean, really? They were that fanatical over these things. And the Pharisees were out there to point out to people, lawbreaker, 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 while they themselves were tombs filled with dead men's bones. They were just horrific hypocrites because nobody could obey all the laws that they had written into Judaism. No one could. And so, anyways, Pharisees taught and enforced those things. And so, a couple more things that popped in my mind when I read A Sabbath Day's Journey Away. Um, Why would Luke use a Jewish idiom, A Sabbath Day's Journey Away, as a Jewish idiom? That's a Jewish phrase that symbolizes a distance. It's a measured distance of 2,000 cubits. Why would Luke use a Jewish idiom to describe a legal travel distance for the Sabbath when writing to a Greek? Theophilus is a Greek. He's not even familiar with the geography. And so why would he say a Sabbath day's journey? Was he expecting Theophilus to know what he's talking about? Uh, When I read a Sabbath day's journey, I just went, okay, that's some sort of a distance. I had really no idea how far it was until I studied it this last week. It makes no sense to me because I'm unfamiliar with those idioms and those Jewish terms and phrases. Why would he write that to this guy? Well, like I said, a couple of things popped in my mind. Maybe uh, Theophilus was a Jewish convert. Maybe he was a Greek by birth and he had converted to Judaism uh, at some point in his life and he became familiar with some of these phrases and some of these things. It's unlikely because he wasn't too certain of what Jerusalem was like and if he was, he would have went to the Passover there every year and visited that place, but maybe he was a convert. You know, maybe he uh, followed Judaism to the best of his ability, and so he was familiar uh, with some of these phrases and and these things. Or maybe he was well-schooled in the Old Testament. Well, actually, not in the Old Testament, but in rabbinic law, because it's not found in Old Testament. Maybe he was familiar with the rabbinic law. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's just a weird thing to me that he would use a Jewish idiom to someone who doesn't understand Judaism, but he does it, and that makes me think that, that Theophilus is somewhat familiar with these phrases and these things. Um, his name, Theophilus, actually means lover of God in Greek. I talked about that, I think, the first week, and so he could have been a Jewish convert uh, or something like that. He, he, he could have been just somebody who was maybe by the grace of God seeking God and seeking salvation. I mean, he had already read all of Luke's gospel because the first letter that Luke wrote was his gospel, and it was written to the same guy, Theophilus. So he was familiar with some of these things, I suppose. Um, In any case, uh, whatever the reason may be, Theophilus would have probably understood what he meant, or else he wouldn't have wrote it. And now he has a sense that, that, okay, the Mount of Olives is a half hour, or half half mile to three quarters of a mile away, and the disciples traveled a distance of 2,000 cubits, or a Sabbath day's journey away. What's he doing? He's painting more of a picture of the distance they traveled, where they came from, how far it is, and the distance that they traveled. And we in the church, and pastors in particular, don't think that little truths like this, and little, little things like this, little nuance, is important. But why is it then put in Scripture? Has anyone ever, I mean, thought about that? If, if these things aren't important, like, okay, Pastor Phil, get to the point. If these things aren't important, then why are they there? There's details that are put there 
Because what happens is all the little nuance and all the little detail and all the little idioms and all those things help to enunciate the point of Scripture. They help to catapult it up to the level that it should be at. And so often in the church, guys, just, they, they don't even talk about these things, and they just go right to the principle that's in Scripture, or they go to something that's not even in that text, and they make some point based on language. But it's important to flush these things out. He's writing to a guy, and he wants the guy to understand what's happening. They've traveled this distance. Now, let's look at 13a. I need a drink because I feel like an auctioneer up here. I talk fast. You've got to be able to keep up. And there's a lot to cover, and that's why. But anyways, 13a, it says, And when they had entered, okay, the disciples came down off, they traveled 2,000 cubits, and when they had entered, they went up, entered Jerusalem, went up to the upper room. They came down off the mountain, they traveled 2,000 cubits, they went to this house uh, that was already set up for them, and they went into the home, and then they went upstairs and went into the upper room. Now, Many of these houses or the homes uh, in this region during this time had these large second stories or what they referred to as upper rooms, especially the bigger homes that belonged to the, the upper class people, the higher class people. If you had money, you would have a home built with an upper room. And, and some of these upper rooms were, were tremendously large. They, they were very large, and I guess we would refer to that as a two-story here, right? Does anyone live in a two-story home? We have a one-story. There's a two-story guy right there. He's got an upper room. Let's all go to his house afterwards and celebrate the Passover. Yeah, but, you know, it, it's, it's kind of that thing playing out. And so the wealthier folks had, some of them had shanties back then. They didn't have anything. And then the middle class had normal homes, and then the upper class people would have these homes with these upper rooms, and some of them were very large. Now, the home that these guys went into had one of these rooms. What does that signal? It signals that the home was owned by someone who had some coin, someone who had some shekels, someone who had some money because not everyone had one of these places. Now, scholars believe that this particular place is the same one that they used during the Last Supper. Uh, they believe that the home may have belonged to the mother of John Mark, who was the author and writer of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, a very interesting thing that they, they've touched on here, and I believe it to be true. But in Mark 14, 12 to 15, we read this, and it kind of gives a little idea of what's going on here. Uh, Mark 14, 12 to 15. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, now this is disciples speaking to Jesus they're about to enter in uh, on basically the day of unleavened bread. They're about to go into the city, and this is the disciples and Jesus interacting with one another. It says, his disciples came to him, to Jesus, and they asked him this, where will you have us go and prepare for you uh, to eat the Passover, or what we would call the Last Supper? And it says, and he sent two of his disciples, uh, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Now, that is a highly bizarre thing because men didn't carry jugs of water. Women did. No, this guy wasn't very feminine and had trouble with his sexuality. He just decided to parade, away, parade around with a jug of water. No, this was a special thing that was worked out with a guy who would do this. And this guy would have stuck out like a sore thumb because that, that was something that women did. I mean, you'd see this guy and go, look at that guy carrying a jug of water. What's going on with him? I wonder if he's, you know, or what the, 
what's going on with this poor guy over here? Why, why, is he carrying, why is he carrying a jug of water? So they would see this guy. This guy would stick out like a sore thumb. He'd be like painted fluorescent orange or something. And so he said, there's a guy going to be in there. He's going to come up. He's going to have a jug of water. You're not going to be able to miss him. And then he says, Jesus says, follow him. And wherever he enters, as you're following him, he's going to go somewhere. Wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, these are my words, tell them that I've told you this, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare uh, the meal for us, is what Jesus tells him. So, the upper room mentioned in verse 13 of our text and in Mark 14, 15 is probably the same place. In fact, it may have been John Mark as a young man at the time who was carrying the jug of water. He may have been the guy sent by his parents to go with the jug of water and go over and, and find the disciples and lead them back. And then who was the guy waiting for them at the house? It was probably John Mark's dad. He's not mentioned in Scripture and neither is his mother. But we don't know for sure, but it sounds like. I mean, this is a home that they used. And, and these, these folks back then didn't just open up their homes, especially to Jesus. For crying out loud, they had, they had basically butchered him on a cross and rejected him as Messiah. Whoever owned this home was someone who was more than likely a follower of Jesus, who believed and who had chosen to open up their home to the ministry of the gospel. And I think it's, I think it's John Mark's mama's house. I do, and I think that they use this home. We see it later on in Acts. I think they use this home repetitively for the ministry of the gospel. I think this home became kind of like a home base in the city of Jerusalem for the ministry of the gospel. Back in Caesarea, or no, back in Capernaum, Jesus did a ton of ministry out of that area, and guess whose home it was that they had a home base there? It was Simon Peter his mother-in-law's home that they worked out of in Capernaum, which was just up north. And so they used people's homes. And so I think that's what's playing out here. Now, <clears throat> this was a, a, a big home and in a big room. And, and there's something else that's really interesting about this. Uh, the distance between the Mount of Olives and this house was basically a Sabbath day's journey or 2,000 cubits. That's what he said. They came down off the mountain. They traveled to the upper room. It was 2,000 cubits or a, a, a Sabbath day's journey. So they're up in the upper room now. They're there, and they've traveled a distance of 2,000 cubits, which places, and they're not sure where the home is for sure, and I think this is fascinating because it's really neat when you kind of have a sense of where these places, we know it's in the city, but it's kind of neat to even think of where it might have been. 2,000 cubits was the distance from the Mount of Olives to basically the eastern wall. And so this home probably hugged the wall. They had homes that were built right up against their barrier wall. And so right when you came in the entrance, this home was probably right there in that vicinity, right in that area, because that would have been a Sabbath day's journey. And as I said, the room was very large. In verse 15 of Acts 1, it says there was 120 people in it. Well, um, that's one heck of a game room, right? I mean, that's, that's a big room. I mean, this room right here I don't think will hold 120 people. Uh, it's got probably 50 in it or 40 in it right now, and we're all pretty comfortable. But I think if you put 100 people in here, it'd be like, I can smell him. You know, it just, it, it just he didn't use the owner. It'd be, it'd be awkward, right? And so this room was probably larger than the room that we're in. This was a big home. This was a big room, and it was probably, the room was probably even bigger than this place. Now, 13B, interesting, it says where they were staying... Okay, they were staying at this upper room. Uh, this upper room, this home, wasn't a place 
that the disciples visited here and there. It was where they were staying until the Holy Spirit came. Um, It was almost like a temporary residence. But they didn't stay at this place like 24 hours a day for like the next 10 days because the scripture reveals that the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost 10 days later. What they did was they stayed in this place. They used it as a home base. They used it as a place to wait for the Spirit of God to come. But they didn't stay secluded and locked away in it. Uh, Luke 24.53 says that when they came down off the Mount of Olives, yes, they went down to the upper room and did some stuff there, but they also had and were filled with great joy. And it says that they were continually in the temple blessing God. And so they came down off the mountain. They traveled 2,000 cubits. They go into the upper room. This is a headquarters for them. They're going to wait in this place for the Holy Spirit to come for the day of Pentecost. But they also left it for 10 days, back and forth, went to the temple, not to sacrifice animals uh, for their sins because the Lamb of God sacrificed himself on the cross just prior to this. So they weren't there offering sacrifices like the other Jews may have been doing. They were there just blessing God for what he had done. Maybe they were reflecting upon how all of those ordinances and and everything that pertained to the temple no longer pertained to them because of the atoning work of Christ. I don't know. But they were out and about in the community, and they were out and about in the temple blessing God, worshiping, I guess, to some degree. Now, this is a radical shift in their behavior. This is a major shift, a contrast in their behavior, because after the resurrection, the Scripture The scriptures say that they stayed in seclusion behind locked doors, John 20, 19. Okay, after the resurrection of Christ, after he came out of the tomb and then went out for 40 days and presented himself to others and witnessed and showed himself to others, whoa, you did rise, hello, that's amazing, I now believe in you, you just proved that you have power and you are the Son of God, all this stuff was playing out. During that whole 40 days, they pretty much stayed behind locked doors. We don't know why they did that. It may have been out of fear. I mean, they had just watched their Lord and Master be slaughtered. They had fled in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was arrested, not to show their faces again until after the resurrection, until Jesus actually came to them over and over and over. So maybe it was out of fear. They were worried that, hey, we were following him. Everyone knows that we were his guys. And so they kept themselves behind locked doors because they didn't want to get crucified. They didn't want to get beaten. They didn't want to get flayed and laid open or whatever it is. I, I don't know. We don't know. But they stayed behind locked doors. Incredible. But now we see after the ascension, after they see Christ rise up to heaven and go back to the place that he came from, They're now emboldened and filled with joy and they come down off the mountain and they go in to the upper room and they do some things that we're going to get to in a bit, but they also go into the temple. They're bold. They go off into the temple to bless God. They don't have fear anymore. It says that their countenance and their attitude and their heart switched to joy. And see, that's what the doctrine of ascension does. It brings joy because we see Jesus returning to where he came from, which proves he is who he said he is. It should have the same effect on us when we study these things. Wow, he came out of glory in heaven to save us, and then he returned, and guess what? He's going to come back. We ought to be walking around without fear, in joy, spreading the gospel. Awesome thing. The whole thing shifts. It's so awesome what's happening with these guys. They were encouraged because Christ proved that he said who he was, He proved it, and then he ascended, and that, man, he is the 
everlasting, eternal Son of God, and they believed it when they saw him go off, and it gave them great courage and boldness, and so they went out and about. Now, in Luke, or in 13c of our passage, Luke gives the names of the disciples that came down from the Mount of Olives uh, that entered into the upper room. Look at 13c in your Bible. He gives the names. He says, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. Judas the son of James is not Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. He is a different uh, Judas. And a lot of the Jewish guys back then shared names. They all had the same names and stuff, and we do that here too in our nation, but an interesting thing. So... Now, Luke placed these guys in a pecking order. Jesus had formed three rings of leadership within the 12 disciples. They could be categorized as rings A, B, and C. Ring A consisted of Peter, John, James, and Andrew. These were the disciples that were closest to Jesus. Uh, They were the inner ring And uh, we see evidence of this in Scripture uh, based upon the fact that the disciples are always listed in that type of an order. Peter is always the head. He was the the leader of the group. And then we have James or John, and then it it goes down from there. And we see evidence of this not only because of the listings in Scripture of how they're listed by name in an order, but by how the Lord uh, gave them special privileges in his inner leadership team of basically Peter, John, James, and Andrew, more particularly with Peter, John, and James, what did he do with them before all of these things took place? He took them up on the Mount of Olives in a prior instance, and he was transfigured before them. Why didn't he take all the disciples up there? I don't know. Some of us would think, that's unfair. Well, guess what? He had different levels of leadership. And Peter, James, and John, and I suppose Thomas, but we don't, or Andrew, but we don't see a lot with him, but we certainly see a lot more interaction with Peter, John, and James. And we see them go up on the Mount of Transfiguration, or we see them go to the Transfiguration on the Mount of Olives or what have you. Now, they were in ring A. They were the closest disciples to Jesus. In ring B, it consisted of Peter, or not Peter, but Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew. These were the disciples that were second closest to Jesus. Uh, they were not the closest ring, but they would have been the next ring out. And then we see uh, we've got ring B, which consisted of Philip, uh, not ring B, ring C, which consisted of James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and then it you know, had Judas Iscariot, who was the one that, who betrayed him. These were the disciples that were third closest uh, to Jesus. They were the outer ring. And like I said, there's evidence in scripture that shows these rings of leadership with the closest, the middle, and the outer ring. Very, very interesting stuff here. And I think that Luke, because he's our writer of the book of Acts, I think that he puts them in the order because that's pretty much what he's done before and that's what the other gospel writers do. But he wants us to see that, he wants us to see the order in which the disciples were viewed by Christ. Now, we've got to get something straight here. We've got to make sure that we do not think of the Lord in the wrong way when we understand that he had a close ring, a middle ring, and an outer ring. He didn't base his decision on these rings and who would be in which rings. He didn't base his decision to do this, but he didn't base it on favoritism. 
He didn't base it upon devotion. Like, oh, Peter's more devoted. <clears throat> Peter was not more devoted than any of them. I suppose he was more than Judas Iscariot because he was never devoted. But he didn't base this on, I like these guys more, and so these are the guys that I'm going to be closest to. He didn't base it on that. He didn't base it on, oh, these guys are cool, but they're the most devoted. Look at all the stuff they do for me. So I'm going to choose them to be my inner ring. And these guys are okay. They're reasonably devoted. So I'm going to have them be the middle. And these guys on the outside, they're, they're cool. Uh, you know, they, one of them got me, you know, a glass of wine the other night. And so, he, you know, whatever. They, he didn't base it upon what these guys could do. Base it upon the strength of their faith. Because if we look at the Gospels, their faith was lame. I mean, they were in and out of faith. I mean, I don't think they were really full believers until the ascension because they just did so many things that didn't. I mean, really, you love Jesus and now you don't and you're scattering and you're running for your lives because he's arrested. They just didn't characterize real faith, but maybe they were real believers. But he didn't base it on those things. Those are things. Those are the things that we base who we hang out with on. Those are the things that we base our decisions upon. We look at the most devoted, maybe even the most attractive. Oh, yeah, those are, those are good looking. I don't know. That's weird for a guy to say that. Those guys are good looking. I'm going to hang out with them. <laughs> Wouldn't want to hang out with that guy. That's weird, right? But, you know, I, I, we base things on appearance. We base things on devotion. We base things on what people give to us and what they can give us and what they've done for us. And so, you know, our inner ring is, is it, it's usually dictated by not by the Spirit of God, but by what we can get out of somebody or by what they can do for us, or what they have done for us, or how much money they can give, or how many things they buy us. Or, or maybe for some of you ladies, man, I like my girlfriends, we go out clubbing, and they're all hotties, you know, and you don't want to go out with chicks that you don't think are cool, and you know, whatever, and that's just lame, but it's a reality that we live in. I don't know. These are not the reasons why Jesus formed these rings. And, and I believe, I believe it through and through, that it was the Father who sovereignly chose these men for their roles. He chose for those four guys to be in the closest ring and then the middle ring and then you know, the other guys on the outer ring. He's the one that laid it all out. He's the one that constructed this whole plan of redemption and salvation and gospel ministry and all that. And, and, and he is the one that laid it all out. And guess what? He's the one that was absolutely fine with Judas being unregenerate and doing what he did. Judas didn't get saved. Judas didn't repent. Judas never believed, never wanted to, and never would have. And guess what? God allowed that to take place. Somebody had to betray Christ. And guess what? All people, all people apart from Christ are betrayers of Christ. It's when Christ comes into a life and saves a soul that they now become allied with Christ and allied with God and a friend of God. But if Christ doesn't do a work, we're all naturally enemies. We all want sin. We all want hell. We all want death. We do. And that's exactly what Judas wanted from the get-go. And his heart was so calloused that he never received the gospel nor wanted to. In fact, he stole money. He, He was always looking for an angle to get over on the rest of them, to get over on Christ. And so I believe God sovereignly chose all these men to serve in the roles that they did. Now, we must never forget what Jesus did before he chose these men and placed them. Luke 6, 12 to 13 says that he prayed all night. On the eve of him choosing and placing 
the disciples in their leadership roles in those rings of leadership, those weren't fashioned over time. He chose them right off the get-go. On the eve of doing that, he prayed all night long. An all-night prayer session by himself with the Sovereign Father, seeking His will, getting instructions, figuring out who was going to be where. Because the Son of God, He was fully God, but He was in flesh. And there were things that He had laid aside as He stepped out of glory to come. And so He needed to seek the Father's will and to know what the Father wanted. And so He spends all night praying before He makes a very important decision on placing, choosing these guys and placing them in their rings of leadership. He prayed all night, it says in the Scripture. He didn't base his decision to put these guys here or there on what they could do or their faith or any of those things. He did it because they were to be right where they were to be, and that was God's choice. And he was humbly obedient to what the Father wanted and put them where the Father wanted. He did those things perfectly. Oh, how I wish we could. Can you imagine what it would be like for us without the grace of God? We are slugs. Man, we are. And Christ obeyed perfectly all that the Father commanded. He, and, and because He did that, it's okay for us not to be able to do that. He's the one that did it and achieved it and pulled it off. And, and He's the one that took all our baggage and all our sin and all our disobedience and everything evil and wicked and wrong about us. And he took all that upon himself on the cross and, and became, the scriptures say, he became sin for us. And when he died on the cross, he imputed his righteousness, his perfect obedience to those who believe. And so we don't have to get it all perfect and, and, and try to, we don't have to measure how many cubits we walk. <laughs> we don't have to, you know, cook all our food on, on Saturday and then eat old food on Sunday. We, we, we don't, we don't, we're not condemned by our disobedience to those things because of what Christ did. And, and we should love him passionately for that. That's the gospel. That is the gospel. And so he picked these men, and Luke names them in an order, and he does it for a reason there. He wants us to know that these are the leaders and these are the rings and these are the men that came down. He deliberately does not put Judas Iscariot because he's nowhere to be seen. We'll learn about what happens to him next week. He's not in this group anymore. He's not in a ring of leadership. He fully forsook the Lord and left him. Let's look at 14a now. It says, all these, all these, the disciples, all the disciples with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. All these with one accord means that the disciples were unified. Unified in what? They were unified in being devoted to praying together. When the disciples came down from the Mount of Olives, they all agreed that prayer was a number one priority, and so they devoted themselves to it. Now, why did they do this? And, and what would they have been praying for? Some teach that they were praying for the baptism of the Holy Spirit to come. Some take this even further by saying that unless a believer asks for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it will not come. It will not come unless you pray to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You've got to listen to this commentary on this by MacArthur, and this is what he wrote on this particular section. He wrote, 
The coming of the Holy Spirit did not depend on their prayer. In the largest circulating Pentecostal publication in North America, the weekly Pentecostal Evangel, there appears on the inside cover of each edition a creedal statement that introduces this thought and includes prayer as a condition of the baptism of the Spirit. The thing says, the thing says this, and I quote, We believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is given to believers who ask for it. That's the creedal statement. That is not the statement of the Word of God. They didn't have to ask for the Spirit to come. The Spirit, if you'll notice very carefully in Acts 1-4, was the promise of the Father. It was a sovereign dispensing of the Spirit of God apart from their prayers. They were praying because for the first time they were removed from Jesus and the only communication they could have with him was through prayer. And thus, they were in prayer to him. And that's the beginning of a new age because of up to this point, no one had ever prayed to Jesus. And so you have a classic dispensation distinction in Acts 1.14. You have them praying for the first time to Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father. Isn't that cool? That's what they were doing. He says this, this is a new thing, and they're praying to him up there. He's ascended. And it doesn't say that they were, pray- they were asking for the Spirit to come. In fact, when the Spirit came in Acts 2.2, they weren't praying at all. They were just sitting around. It says so. And the posture of prayer was to stand or kneel, and they were just sitting. Their prayers had nothing to do with whether the Spirit came. That was the promised, that was promised of God, signed, sealed, and about to be delivered in God's good time and at God's great moment. And it was in no way related to their prayers. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is something that is being taught today in a lot of churches. Fastest growing church in the world today is the Pentecostal church. It's the Assemblies of God movement. In that movement, they teach that you must request to be baptized in the Spirit. And this is why MacArthur goes off on this all time, because it's not scriptural. It's a very dangerous thing uh, to do and to focus on. We must always know, and as he says, it was, it, uh, the Spirit coming had nothing to do with the prayers. It, is always and it is always and it will always have to do with the sovereign act of God. Nothing they said, nothing they did could affect the coming of the Spirit one iota. So what do we have? We have them up in the room praying to Christ, the risen Christ. No one had ever prayed to Christ before. They're praying for the first time to Jesus, the ascended Messiah, the ascended Son of God. They're praying to Him, lifting up prayers. Why? Not to try to get the Spirit to come sooner than Jesus had promised. They didn't know when he was coming. That's not what they were praying. They did it to maintain fellowship with Christ because this is the first time they had really been removed from him. They went from being in Jesus' physical presence to being in his spiritual presence through prayer in the same day. And guess what? They didn't like being apart from Christ. And so what's one of the first things they did when they came off from seeing him ascend? They go into the upper room. One of the first things they do, they prayed. Uh, we've been apart from Jesus the whole, uh, to some degree since we walked 2,000 cubits. I don't like not having his presence here. And so let's get together and pray and commune with him, commune with him again. I want to be with Jesus is essentially what they're doing. 
And so they enter into his holy presence through prayer. Prayer for this group was much more about being with Jesus and less about asking him for things. Wow. Uh, When I read the scripture and and realized that, I, I felt... I felt like an idiot. I felt like, ah, ooh, man, all I ever do is cry out to you for all these things and the needs of the church and for everyone else's needs, and I'm always intercessing for people, and guess what? I'm always crying out for me and what I need, and I need this and I need that, and and, and so often I come before the throne with with a list of needs instead of just seeking His presence and just saying, Lord, just, I just want to be with you. I mean, the disciples did not like being apart from Christ. They walked 2,000 cubits. They may have been praying on the journey. They get into the room. The first thing they do is say, let's all get together and pray. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're unified in that. Let's do it. They did not like being apart from Christ. And why do we act like we do? Oh, His Spirit lives within us and He's always... yes. But there's something incredible and amazing and miraculous about entering into his throne room through prayer. We are ushered into his divine presence. How many of us are guilty, be honest, that most of our prayer life is about our needs? It's not about communing with them. I see a few heads nodding, but isn't that just who we are? Man, we just got these lists and... It's so not about being in his presence. And for these men, and and we're going to see that there's women, it was about that. Not, okay, send your spirit now, please. Oh, no, it was about being in his divine presence where there's joy and fullness and instruction and mercy and grace and love and acceptance and value, security. Man, that's why they did it. They're up in the room and they're just, they left his physical presence. He went up and they come down and they're right in his presence again in prayer. We just want to continue to be with you, Christ. We don't want to be apart from you in any sense. We know you're with us forever. You'll never leave us or forsake us, but but we want to know that you're here with us. We already miss you. Oh man, what a beautiful thing that plays out in this text. And, 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 And you see this throughout all of the New Testament, throughout all of the epistles. Through the rest of Acts, we're going to see the first church as it really starts coming together after the the day of Pentecost and the church explodes. It grows like from 120, you know, like to 3,000 in like seconds. And what do these people do? They come together to pray. Why? Oh, Susie May needs this. Jonathan needs that. Mark needs this. Fred needs this. Pastor Phil, he needs a lot. Uh, No. I think some of that was there, but it was mostly about being in the presence of Christ. We'll see it as we move through the book. It's amazing, and I hope we're inspired to pray for that very reason, just to commune with the living Christ who sits on his throne of grace. Hmm. And then 14b says, Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, uh, the disciples were in one accord, and they devoted themselves to prayer, and they included others. Uh, let's talk about some of these others for a moment. Who were the women that Luke 
referred to here. Uh, they may have been the gals that were closest to Jesus. It makes sense. Gals like Mary Magdalene and Mary the wife of Clopas. Uh, Mary and Martha, we've heard of them. And Martha the busybody cooking the meal and Mary, you know, Mary down at the feet of Jesus. I just want to be in your presence. Hey, woman, get up and help me. The falafel's burning. You know, you remember all that? And then there was a woman named Salome, and I always call her Salami, and if she was here, she'd slap me upside the head. Salami! You know, she was uh, very kosher. <laughs> no, no. But these gals were very close to Jesus. They were leaders in their own right. Now, yeah, they weren't the, the apostles or disciples, but they were disciples, you know? They were disciples of Christ in the sense of, of discipleship, great followers and devoted, and quite frankly, they were more devoted than the men a lot of times. When Christ got hammered to a cross, there was only one guy there, and that was the guy that Jesus loved, the Apostle John. You know, he always says, the one that Jesus loved. Not you, me, oh. right? He was the only male disciple there, and then there was all these women. All the other guys were, ah, you know, little Taco Bell. They were like the little Taco Bell chihuahuas shivering in a corner somewhere, hiding for their lives. Go women, man. The women were right there. He's crucified. Yeah, ha, ha. The apostle that Jesus loved is there too. No, they weren't acting like that. That's weird. But they were there. They were there. They were there. They were right at the foot of the cross. Congratulations, women. You know, and, 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 and so often my wife is there when I'm trying to hide. <laughs> trying to hide from her for crying out loud. No, I'm just kidding. She shows up. She's, she's like omnipresent. Just, Hi, I'm here again. Right? I never try to hide from her. I love her. But she, she, she is such a strength to me at times when, I, when I'm just, I mean, yeah, Christ is my strength. I get it. But, man, there's times where I just want to flee, you know, and, and, and man, what a, what a great thing there. And congratulations, women, for having incredible faith. And, and, and where you're weak, men are strong. And that isn't in a lot of places, to be honest with you, gals. I just... Women of faith are just amazing. And so these are the, the gals. These are the, the, the ring of female leaders, if you will. I don't know where they land, but they were there always, and they were so involved in the ministry of the gospel. And, and I think he's referring to, to those gals. I really do. And he also mentions Mary, the mother of Jesus, which is very interesting. Um, there is a, a lot of legend and, and, and myth and faulty dogma out there about her. Um, some branches of the Christian faith and other religions have made much of her, too much of her. And, uh, and, and she was here. And, and one of the interesting things is, in this particular text, this is the last time she's mentioned in the New Testament. She's not mentioned in the rest of the book of the Acts or the epistles or Revelation or anywhere else. And one would have to think that if she were really supposed to be exalted to the level that she's been exalted to and prayed to, and she's this intercessor and all this, one would think that there would be some doctrine and things built upon her in the New Testament, which is the foundation for our faith. And yet she is not mentioned one more time after this mentioning right here in our verse 14. Very, very, very interesting. And, and you know, to make a lot out of Mary. Now, this is not to say that Mary does not um, deserve respect and honor because Luke 1.42 says that she does. She was a woman of singular virtue. 
She loved God. If she had not been a woman of singular virtue, she would not have been chosen to bear the Son of God and to give birth to him and to mother him. She was an important woman, and she deserves respect and honor. But we must not forget that she was a sinner who needed Christ. She was a sinner who exalted God, her Savior, it says in Scripture. She actually referred to herself as a humble bond slave to God who needed mercy. Luke 1, 46-50. To offer prayers to her and elevate her as a co-redemptrix with Christ is to go way beyond the bounds of Scripture and her own confession. It's a deadly game. What we call that is idolatry. And I don't mean to be offensive to anyone in here who's Catholic or who has a Catholic background. But there is a reality to Scripture. And then there's a reality to religion. And it, within religion, one can cook up anything. Within Scripture, we, Scripture, Scripture, it's truth, it's absolute, it's finished, it's a complete work. And we must be very careful when it comes to Scripture and these things, especially when it comes to Mary. We don't want to treat Mary in a way that would blemish her name because what the Catholic Church has done with her has done that very thing. It's taken her and made her a god. Not all Catholics do this. I know some Catholics that, that do not uh, pray to Mary or to the saints, that do not worship her. In fact, they don't even mention her. They're all about Jesus. But some, it's all about Mary. She's the intercessor. In fact, they've even given her all the names of the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, all these names that belong to God, the Spirit, they've ascribed to her. I wonder what that makes the risen Lord feel like. It's a dangerous game, a dangerous game that is played, and it's played in ignorance. People know not what they do, I think. And, you know, we can help people understand in grace and love and Mary was a wonderful gal that the Lord used in a mighty way. But Christ is the Savior. The Holy Spirit is the intercessor. The Holy Spirit is the comforter. No one saves you apart from Christ. It is only in Him. I think it's worthy to mention here, since this is her last mentioning in Scripture, who she was. A great woman, but not to be exalted above the bounds of Scripture. Luke also wrote that Jesus' brothers were present. Matthew named them in Matthew 13, 55 to 56. He says, uh, and this is what's happening here, it says, is not this the carpenter's son? These are the people of uh, Nazareth responding to Jesus there because he grew up in Nazareth as a carpenter and all the people are marveling at what he's doing when he came and did ministry there and some of them are ticked off and they're saying, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Like, uh, this guy's just like us. How could he be the Messiah? And then they say, and are not his brothers, now listen to this, James and Joseph, Simon and Judas? And then going further, it says, and are not all his sisters with us? Isn't that a weird thing to think of Jesus having brothers and sisters? That's just weird to me. He levitated, they walked. I don't know what it looked like. You know, I know that's not what happened, but, you know, I mean, can you imagine just like sharing a room with the Messiah? 
<laughs> I don't, it's just weird to me. Yeah, weird in a good way, but it's just strange to think that, like, you know, he was so human, the Messiah who came from heaven, that he had brothers and sisters. Yeah, they were half-brothers, I suppose. But he had siblings. And Luke says that some of his brothers were present in this gathering in the upper room, along with some of these women who were great disciples, and Mama, Mama was there. Now, which brothers was he referring to here? It may have been all of them, but I don't know. I think it was James and Judas. Uh, These two brothers became followers of Jesus. We know this by Scripture. Scripture testifies to it, but they became followers of their own brother, Jesus, after his resurrection, during the 40 days that the Lord showed himself to people. Right after he rose, he went out. and James, his brother, went on to become the pastor of the Christian church in Jerusalem. He led the church there. And then Judas, or Jude, wrote the New Testament epistle that bears his name. And so I think that, man, these are the brothers that were present there in this, you know, in the early church, which was about 120 people. And guess what? The early church met in a small place, just like this church, who was just, which was just planted, meets in a small place. They met in this small place, and they prayed together, and they had fellowship. And it's an amazing thing that's, that's playing out. So they're all up in this upper room, and they were of one accord, unified in prayer, to the ascended Lord Jesus while waiting the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And they also went to the temple to bless God on occasion for what he had done. And this went on for about 10 days until the day of Pentecost. There was really one more super important thing uh, that they did during that 10-day period. And we're going to look at that next week. We're going to focus on that next week. It's going to be great. Now, application. I'm sure that Christ has already spoken to every one of us in a different way and maybe the same way and all that. He spoke to me a lot before I even got to this application part. But being that, and the way the scripture is written is that there's always a topic in there. There's always a main point. And really the main point of our text um, is the choosing of Matthias as the replacement. But we've broken the text up into sections so that we could zone in on it more, so we can't talk about him yet until next week. So we can't talk about the main topic of this particular passage. And so I've prayed and sought the Lord, and, and there, are, there are so many amazing principles and things that are in this text. But I have one thing in particular that I think is really applicable to all of us that's represented in this text in principle, beyond the other things that we've already learned. In principle, our section that we've studied answers really one of the most common questions asked by folks in churches today. Many times, people will uh, seek advice from a pastor or from other Christians like you guys. I mean, they'll, you know, they come to pastors for advice on something, or they'll come to their friend who's a believer uh, for advice on something or whatever, and, and they'll, they'll, they'll ask you know, something like, how do I make this decision according to this situation? What should I do? Or they'll, they'll ask, how do I deal with this? Or how do I deal with that? Or, 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 or how should I, uh, what should I do about this particular thing? Or what should I do about that particular thing? How should I deal with this particular person? Uh, and, and so often for a pastor, it's how do I deal with my husband? Uh, wow. It's always almost that with the married women 
you know, how do I, how do I deal with this guy? And, and one of the reasons is because women seem to be fine with unequally yoking themselves with non-believing men. And so at some point, the banana hits the fan and the man is like, you're not going to keep going to church in these Bible studies. I need you here, woman. Hot, you know, and then, what do I do? I need to divorce him. No, you're not going to divorce him. Not for that. So often it's the gals that come and ask those questions. Or a guy will come and say, hey, man, I've got this thing coming up in my job. And, you know, what should I do? And, and then sometimes it's relational stuff, as I mentioned. You know, like, oh, my friend keeps doing this. How do I, how do I deal with him? Or how do I deal with her? Or... Uh, so often in youth ministry, you know, it's little Susie. What boy should I date? I have failed you as a pastor. <laughs> you are supposed to despise boys in the eighth grade. Oh. Or in college level, what college should I go to? Uh, one that doesn't put you in massive debt. Uh, you know, it's like, I'm in the whole 120K. Way to go. And you come out making 25K. See you in 10 years. <laughs> you know? I mean, right? I'm just being realistic. I mean, these are the things that people come and, and ask uh, for answers for. Yeah, they do, you know? They do it all the time. What college? What home? I've had somebody ask me what home they should buy. One with an upper room so we can meet there. I don't know. <laughs> we need to plant a church over in that area. So, you know, I... I don't know what home you should buy for crying out loud. Should I get a bidet installed? Are we in France? You know? And a lot of times what we do, right, or pastors do, is we give them our default answer, right? Our default answer is, you need to wait on the Lord for that. Right? And they're like, eh. Really? I thought you were his intercessor today, Pastor Phil. I ain't got a clue what he wants for you. You know? <laughs> Don't we say that, though? You need to wait on the, You need to seek the Lord for that one. That's almost like the Christian no, when somebody asks you to do something, and the Christian no is, I'll pray about that. Right? You ain't praying about Jack. You just told that person no, and you don't have the guts to tell them no. Tell them no. You will not be at that place at that time doing that thing. Right? That sounds interesting. Let me pray about that. Or, what do I do about this? You need to wait on the Lord for that. And, and, and here's, here's where the rubber meets the road here. The answer that's usually given, and this is what the text answers in principle, the answer usually given when you tell somebody, wait on the Lord, they'll say something like, what do I do in the meantime while waiting on the Lord? So often, well, what do I do in the meantime? What, what do I do in between? What if he tarries in his answer? What, uh, I mean, that's just like leaving them out there, just, whew, just catapulting them out there into time and space, you know, and they're just like, what do I do in the meantime? And, and this is what our text answers so radically well. The answer is represented in how the disciples responded while waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. What did they do? We've covered it. They gathered together in the upper room. That's fellowship. That's one thing that they did. They devoted themselves, yes, to prayer, but yes, to fellowship. This was not 
individuals off praying in sections and areas in their homes by themselves. There's no doubt that they did those things when they dispersed and went home. This is a body. The early church gathered together in fellowship. They devoted themselves to fellowship. What's the second thing we see? It's they were of one accord. They maintained unity. The way that I translate that is they kept the main thing, the main thing in the group. And that was the gospel, and that was praying and being in close proximity to Jesus, communing with him through prayer. They gathered in fellowship. They were of one accord. I don't think that they sat around in this upper room and described the finer points of theology. I don't think that they had big-time doctrinal conversations about the apocalypse. Is it now? That's a movie. You know, I don't, I don't think they sat around and did that. I think that they kept the main thing, the main thing. They kept the cross at the forefront. They kept the fellowship at the forefront. And thirdly, what did they do? They were devoted to prayer. In our text, that's not so much as about them asking for things all the time from the Lord, but about them constantly entering into the Lord's presence. What do you do in those times of uncertainty, in those times where you've been told to wait on the Lord, you keep coming to the fellowship. You stay in fellowship. You stay around God's people. You may need an answer from God, and guess what? I'll go out on a limb and say this. I will say that 85 to 90%, maybe even 95% of the answers that he gives us isn't at the individual level. It's when we're gathered together with his people. It's when his word is proclaimed. It's when your friend in that congregation comes to you at church and they give you wisdom. They give you an insight. They share God's word with you. They share their experience. God speaks in the setting of fellowship. And there's a horrible thing in the church today where we think that, you know, oh, I can just go off and, and be my own little individual and I can form my own church on the internet at my house and I can just listen to Rabbi Zacharias all day and that's church. And No, it's not. Church means fellowship. It means gathering. It means being together where we can hear from God together and where Carol can help me hear the voice of the Lord at times when I need an answer. Or Bailey can help her brother in those settings. God speaks in the setting of fellowship. He gives answers there. Can you imagine what would have happened if the disciples came down off the mountain and dispersed and just went out and did their thing and they didn't come together in fellowship and seek the Lord the way that they did and all that? I mean, that would have been, I'm thinking if that's what they would have done, if they hadn't obeyed and come down off the mountain, went into the room, started praying, started fellowship and acting like a church, loving each other, caring for each other, meeting needs and all those things, if they hadn't have done that, I'm fully convinced that the scriptures would end at Acts 1.14. It'd be done. It's over. There is no new, the rest of the New Testament if they hadn't come down and formed fellowship and spent time together and even done those other things, being unified, being about prayer. God spoke to them in that setting. They were communing and coming into the presence of the living God while awaiting for the Holy Spirit to come. You've got to be committed to the fellowship. 
And here's the problem with us. In our Adamic nature, in our flesh, when we go through times of struggle and difficult seasons and things, what do we do? What is our natural inclination? It's to run. It's to flee. It's to hide. It's to disconnect from the fellowship. And quite frankly, we don't devote ourselves to prayer. We just go off in our misery and just huddle somewhere. And life just stinks. And God, what's going on? And you have any idea what a brother in Christ, how God could use that person in your life on that Sunday morning when you come to fellowship? How he could speak truth in your life, encourage you? Quite frankly, sometimes they don't need to say a word. They just need to be there. It's called the ministry of presence. They're just there to put an arm around you, to hug you. You, you, we got to get this, man, because it's not our natural thing. We will run and flee and hide and disconnect. And, and that's not at all what the disciples did. They came together into that fellowship and they kept that unity. I mean, it's so very, very important that while you're waiting on God, that you're communing with him, not just to get the answer to the problem or to the question, but to be with him to be with him because he is the source of our joy and power and mercy and all those things that we need so radically. Now, we should be committed to doing the same things that the early church did. You know, one of the reasons why we're going through this series is so we can learn how the church functioned at its incarnation. Because I really believe through all the study and reading that I've done, and I'm no expert, man. I, I say this in humility. I think the church has lost its way in a lot of ways. And, 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 and you know, if you, if you don't study history and look at where we've been and what we've done, we're doomed to repeat ourselves. And so we want to see how the early church functioned and what Christ did in the early church so that we as a new church can do the right things and stay in the gospel and be on, minist- you know, on the ministry of the gospel, on task, doing the right things. And, and dang, man, we need to be about what they were doing, not just to get the answers that we need in those times of difficulty, but to commune, to have strong fellowship, love, support, security. You know, what Satan wants most is for us to splinter and to fragment at the onset, onset of difficulty because it's much easier for him to devour a lamb who's out there on his own or on her own. It's, it's his will and plan that when stuff happens that we disconnect from the fellowship. And maybe it's just personal sin. We just feel dirty. We've just done some horrendous things and, and we don't feel worthy to be in the fellowship. Guess what? There ain't one person in here that's worthy of the fellowship. So welcome to the club. Praise the Lord for that. Any perfect person in here can hit the door. Go. There isn't one in here that's really at all one iota worthy of what Christ gives. The fellowship is for the unworthy, for the degenerate, for the sinner saved by grace. We need to remember these things. We need to stay in that fellowship as they did. We need to be unified in the gospel. Keep the main thing the main thing. And we need to devote ourselves to prayer so that we can ask God for what we need. Yes, 
but so that we can commune with him more than anything else. It worked for the early church, and these things will work for us. May we commit ourselves to the word of God this week, as well as to the ministry of the gospel in our own homes and in our community. A community needs Christ desperately, as desperately as we need him daily, right? Amen. May we do